Hi, I'm the person whose closet is put in color order, but I'll also pick up an earthworm without thinking twice. In fact, I did yesterday. <laughs> it needed my help. I'm not afraid to be a little messy. Human nature is messy, but nature nature can help us embrace it. I love the brand seventh generation. Their laundry detergent lifts away tough stains with the power of bioenzymes. That's exciting. You wipe your hands on your pants after you pick up an earthworm. Seventh generation is like, don't worry, hug a dirty tree, huff some bark. It's good for you. That is the power of seventh generation. Find laundry detergent and other laundry products at seventhgeneration.com. I love worms. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I wanna do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, hey, it's that yogurt parfait that honestly... Could use a little more granola. Allie Ward, I'm here with an episode that took not only two years to make, COVID be damned, but has also been in the works since the Permian period, 270 million years ago, nerds. When it comes to cycads, she is it. She is the person. And wait, hold up. What is a cycad? Good question. So with a name like cycad, it could be anything. It could be a person on top and a shark on the bottom. I feel like a cycad could be a $16 cocktail at a speakeasy full of jerks. A cycad could be a type of sore, maybe uh, on your mouth if you're allergic to citrus, if I had to guess, but no. Backing up, a cycad, it comes from the Greek, a typo for the word palm, despite a cycad, which is a plant, not being a palm tree at all. So cycads have been on the scene 200 million years before palm trees. Palm trees stumble in like, hey, what's up, what I miss? And cycads are like, what did you miss? Oh, just the rise of the dinosaurs and like gymnosperms, AKA, plants that just bust out naked seeds without even having these new flowers or whatever you have palms. So cycads, ancient plants, so much older than palm trees, and they have like a stout, hairy trunk. It kind of looks like if your cat used a pineapple as a scratching post. And they have a bunch of stiff pinnate leaves. They have a spine down the center. And just like in ancient times, there are rigid females and males. They're also critically endangered. They're surrounded by so much drama, so much drama. You're not going to know what to do with yourself. Plants? Yes. Hang tight. So this cycad sleuth got a PhD at the University of Melbourne and continued her postdoc research at Duke and UC Berkeley and Harvard. She went back to Australia to be a research scientist at the Royal Botanic Garden in Sydney, and then in 2017 made the journey back up to the Northern Hemisphere to join the California Academy of Arts and Science in San Francisco as an associate curator and the McAllister Chair of Botany. And it was there that I met her when I moderated a women in science panel. And I remember it well, many ologites in attendance. And this ologist was someone I just adored immediately. And I met her March of 2020, March 5th. Ah, no one was in masks. 
Very few people had hand sanitizer, and hundreds of us packed into a room fearlessly. Instead of handshakes, we knocked sneakers in a greeting, being like, this is going to save us. We're so young. We're so naive. And I, since then, I'd wanted to interview her for years, just waiting for this pandemic to be over. But you know what? Too much waiting. Let's do it. So Natalie spoke to me this week from Australia, where she's with family. We hopped on to chat, which you're going to hear very soon. But first, a quick thank you to all patrons who support the show at patreon.com slash ologies. You can join up for a dollar a month or more and submit questions. Thank you to everyone who talks to their friends and maybe their foes about ologies. Thanks to everyone who makes sure they're subscribed. That really keeps us up in the charts. Also, reviews do. I read each and every one of them. And to prove it, I will pick a fresh one. Thank you, Lubug19, who wrote, for lovers and haters of science alike. I hated science in high school, like so much, they write. Ologies make science of all types absolutely fascinating, and I cannot get enough of it. So thank you, Lubug19. Everyone else who wrote a review, I read it, and I love you. Thank you. Okay, you ready? Nope, you're not. That was a trick question. Okay, here we go. Plant capers, investment strategies, Jurassic flimflam, nudity, Sort of. The Michael Phelps of plant sperm, neighborhood psychiatric safaris, cultivating pet plants, thumbs that are not green, heists, thrillers, poachers, rangers, gardens, and one of the best fixes for procrastination I have ever heard with botanist, research scientist, scholar, enthusiast of charismatic gymnosperms, and one of the world's most respected, charming, funny, and endearing scientists, the universally beloved psychiatrist Dr. Natalie Nagalingam. Oh, first off, I should ask, can you say your first and last name and the pronouns you use? My name is Natalie Nagalingam, and my pronouns are she, her. I hate to ask this because everyone asks this, but what time is it there? It is 8.34. At p.m.? A.m. A.m.? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, did we get you up early? Yes, you did. I had, like, two alarms set to make sure I wouldn't sleep in. And then, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, We're both I... having our first coffee of the day, probably. Oh, God. Yeah, I had breakfast, and, yeah, made it. Um. Well, I'm so glad that we're finally doing this because I had such a good time talking to you in San Francisco. That was just an amazing, amazing time. And I have been waiting. That was just a few days before COVID, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pre-COVID. I remember you tapping us with your shoes to, like, mm -hmm. to, to greet us. Yeah. We didn't know anything. I feel like that was like one of the last fun times in public yeah. I had was with you. That's true. Yep. <laughs> I didn't know what a psychad was until I met you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and it's so endangered. And for lack of a better term, we can call you a psychedologist. Yeah. Is that a real word? Yeah, it is, actually. It is? <gasps> yes. Oh, that makes me so happy because I do feel like we we nudge toward words that are very new sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is real. But these plants are so old. Yeah, they're pretty ancient. And, you know, if you look at, you know, all those dinosaur pictures, you're going to see something that looks like a cycad. Were cycads around during the time of the dinosaurs or were their ancestors around? Um, well, that's kind of tricky. Cause so the ones that we see today are kind of like a whole new crop of species, but mm -hmm. their great, great grandparents, they were around 
during the time of the dinosaurs. And they also had kind of like distant relatives, cousins kind of thing that looked like them that were around during the time of the dinosaurs. To me, I think of a pineapple wearing a palm tree as a hat. And I feel like that is perhaps not the best description. But can you explain what does a cycad in your experience look like? That is a great, that is a really, really? good description. Yeah, I never thought of that. I love it. Um, oh. I use a really boring description. I, I think it's from the botanical description saying it, you know, it looks like a palm. It's got a stout trunk and it's got a crown of leaves at the top. Um, they have cones, and those cones look like pine cones. But your, I like yours is much more interesting. <laughs> so yes, very deep green, stiff leaves, a hairy, stumpy trunk. You've seen a million of them planted in dentist office and maybe malls in business park landscaping, and thought, "Wow, what a very small palm." So people either take them for granted or are obsessed with them for like millions of years now. How long does it take for them to reproduce? It, why are they so endangered? They, they grow really, really slowly. So if you think of the seed, the seed takes a year for the root to germinate. And then it's a few months after that, that, that you get the first leaf. Oh, wow. So that in itself is really slow. And then each like cycad plant, it just grows about I don't know, one centimetre, I'm in centimetres here, Um, (laughs) so it's like half an inch or something. It it grows really, really slowly each year. And so if you see something that's probably, you know, up to your knee, that's probably about 10 years old. Oh, so they're little guys, (laughs) kind of, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But if you go into the field, you can find really big guys. Like I've, you know, I've been to field sites where there's three metre tall and I've had to, you know, get my husband to like, climb on a rock and you know, reach on his tippy toes to get a sample for me because there's no way that I can reach it. What does your field work look like? Do you have to take a time machine at all to the past? Oh, only. My, my time machine is our car. And <laughs> um, what I do is I we have all these collections and this is common for, you know, all of biology that we we store collections of plants and animals that we found in the wild. And what I do is I look at those collections and find out where the cycads been collected before. And I go back to those collections and note down where they're from. And I go back to those locations and try to find them. Sometimes I can go back and there are no cycads there. Um, sometimes I can go back and there are cycads there. It, it is kind of hit or miss. So part of Natalie's work involves tromping through field sites, looking for new species or discerning the presence of specimens that are thought to be extinct in the wild, or she returns to field sites other botanists have documented to drop by like a little yoo-hoo, anybody home, just checking in. So psychologists pass this baton generationally, kind of like science links in this unbroken chain. How long have you been studying cycads? Well, I so I started off my career as a paleobotanist. And okay. so if you break that word down, paleo meaning ancient and old, and botanist meaning someone who's a botanist who studies botany plants. So I studied ancient plants. And that really fascinated me, being able to go back in time. And cycads are these really, really ancient plants. And so I started studying cycads and ferns and conifers, things like pine trees. Then a little bit later into my career, we got the ability to use DNA to answer these ancient questions, not just through fossils. And so I transitioned into that. 
And so now I use DNA to try and uncover all of those questions that I was trying to answer just using fossils alone. Oh, wow. So now you have this completely like backstage molecular way of looking at things. Whereas before, did you just have to look really closely at whatever their leaves and their stems and their roots look like to try to identify them? Yeah, yeah. It was meant like you sort of had to group them um, based on those characters that you said. And then were they similar to, say, ones in, you know, the ones in Antarctica? Were they, were they similar to ones in Australia? So it's sort of just using features like that that we figured out what was happening. And then if there was changes or if there were changes over time, then you could say this has evolved from that or there has been some kind of evolution happening. Hold on, back up. Did you say Antarctica? Are there cycads on Antarctica? Is that, or are you, is that a joke? No. There, what? In the Cretaceous, there were lush forests in the, in the Antarctic. This is news to me. Um, and so... I studied some. I studied fossil ferns there. It's like the last place you would believe there are ferns. What happened was that the world was much, much warmer. It was called a greenhouse earth. So the the world was warmer, and there were dinosaurs down there. There were lush forests. Those forests were actually really similar to the Australian forests and to the South American forests. And so you find things like these huge conifer trees. You find ferns. You find cycads. You find little bitty like moss-like relatives. You find them all. <gasps> That's blowing my mind that underneath tons and tons of glaciers and snow are fossils of ferns yeah. and mosses and cycads. Yeah. And dinosaurs? Yes, yeah. <gasps> and the cool thing about the dinosaurs from that region, so you know, Australia, Antarctica, South America, is that they had these really big eye sockets. Um, and because half of the year in Antarctica, it was dark. And so they had these huge eyes to allow them to see during that dark period. Oh, my God. Okay, did dinosaurs on Antarctica, or did dinosaurs in general, did they eat cycads? Were they edible? Yeah, yes. So there's over the last few years, there's increasingly more evidence that dinosaurs ate cycads. So I've come, I'm always on the lookout for papers that show evidence for this. Um, maybe like 15 years ago, there was kind of like, oh, these, these are some leaves. It looks like they could be cycads in a dinosaur's gut, but we're not 100% sure. And then more recently, we found seeds in dinosaur guts that are definitively cycads and some leaves as well that are from dinosaur's guts. Oh, my God. The, the fact that someone could look at a fossil and be able to see certain seeds that a dinosaur yeah. ate as its, you know, final meal is bananas. yeah. yeah or rather cycads, but what do their seeds look like? How do you even identify a cycad seed? So they're just kind of a round blob, really. They're not very exciting. <laughs> um, and they do differ. They differ by, you know, species and genus and stuff like that. But they're just like a bit, they're kind of big, maybe um, like the palm of your hand. Oh, really? Yeah, they're pretty, pretty big. And then some of them are probably, you know, much, much smaller maybe the size of your thumb. It just depends on the, the species and, and, you know, and there's always variability. So reminder, cycads are gymnosperms or naked seeds, which is extremely sensual of them. And they're nude seeds 
They're just waiting around for pollen, where angiosperms, angion means container, so a contained seed, have much more complicated reproduction. It involves flowers and some other romantic business, like encasing their seeds, perhaps in a delicious, juicy ovary, aka a fruit. But cycads, cycads are like, no, I'm a gymnosperm. I'm here. I'm naked. Let's do this. And in female plants, they can just be hanging out in a feathery looking leaf nest in the middle of their fronds. There's plenty of variability in the seeds, but from the gaze of my light Googling, they kind of look like dried pinto beans or fava beans. How did they get dispersed if they were so dang big? Oh, that's, that's another question that like, I think about a lot. Um, and people have done studies. So one of, one of my favorite studies by some people up in Queensland is they got a cone and they put little bits of metal on them, like a nut or a bolt or a nail, and then they just sort of, you know, let it become ripen. And then they went around the bush with a metal detector and they tried to figure out how far away did those oh. seeds go. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so they so found cool. that it's like they didn't go very far. It was like little mammals, Australian, you know, marsupial, they had sort of like picked apart the cone and just sort of taken them, you know, a couple of metres away. But not oh. very far. There's also thoughts that emus eat them in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, other birds might eat them, like cassowaries in the north of Australia. Um, I'm not so sure in, in South Africa. I don't think there is evidence of, you know, the big, big megafauna, you know, the big five mm-hmm. um, eating the cycad seeds. Okay, quick aside. She dropped the big five like a Los Angeles person casually talks about freeway interchanges. But I looked this up for us. And those big five animals are kangaroos, wombats, koalas, crocodiles, and emus. Wait, no. Okay. Another website said kangaroos, wombats, koalas, crocodiles, and platypuses. Shit. Okay, never mind. Another person, okay. Another person lists kangaroos, wombats, koalas, platypuses, echidnas. I don't know, Australia, I don't know what your big five is. For a cane toad like me, I reckon it's a bit of a dog's breakfast. Good on me. Ta. I looked up slang. So basically, once you've got a cycad population, if if you take it away, nothing's going to bring it back. Oh, wow. Can you tell me a little bit about their range where do we find cycads now so i like to say that they are found in regions that i like which is warm and tropical <laughs> and so it's like it's great for field work sometimes, sometimes it's a bit hot and a bit mosquito-y um, but it's kind of like the warm tropical bands like the top of australia in the pacific in the caribbean um in asia so thailand up into India, some in China, and then you go across to Africa and Southern Africa and Madagascar as well. So they're they're sort of in in a band sort of in the middle of the globe. So if cycads were looking for an apartment, their search terms would be like warm vibes, average to above average humidity, equatorial adjacent maybe, places like Central America or the northern parts of South America, Eastern Africa, very popular region, and the coasts of Southeast Asia. But what about Natalie herself? Was it always locations, locations, locations? Did you grow up wanting to 
travel a lot? Did you grow up really curious about native habitats? How did you end up getting to travel around and, and learn so much about these very endangered, beautiful plants? I had no idea that I could have a job like this. Um, I'm a you know, first generation. My parents are from Mauritius, which is a tiny little island next to Madagascar. Um, oh. Not many people have even heard of it. It's actually, people probably know it because of the dodo. And that's where the dodo was from. And the dodo became extinct there. Wow. Um, but otherwise, people don't know about it. And so my parents moved from Mauritius to Australia. And we were encouraged to go to school. And, you know, we came here to give you a bit of life. And so I just went to school. I went to university. Um, and just sort of kept following what really interested me. And that was science. And then I didn't realize that I could be a, you know, a doctor and pursue these plants all over the world. What was it like when you got your doctorate? Um, it was just relief because it was a long time. <laughs> I think, I think once you, yeah, once you do it, it's just, you, you, for me, and I think for many people, I just felt sick of it. It was like, I just want to get rid of this. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do something else because it just consumes your life. Yeah. And so I was just happy to get it done. And I think what was the nicest part was my family was so happy. And so, you know, I have photos of my graduation day and they were all, everyone was so pleased and um, we're all smiling. So that was really nice. So Dr. Nagalingam has published papers with titles like Conservation Genetics of Wild Populations and Botanic Garden Collections of Australian Cycads and Phylogeny of the Gymnosperm Species Cycus L, as inferred from plastid and nuclear loci based on large-scale sampling, evolutionary relationships and taxonomical implications. But what plant knowledge is she just really digging into now? Um, is there anything that you are really excited about researching right now? Yeah, so this project is basically like like a zoo breeding program. Now we have all these zoos with, you know, like lizards or frogs, and we have a population and we use their pedigrees to figure out which ones we're going to breed together mm -hmm. to make sure that, you know, we're not inbreeding and we increase their populations for eventually bringing them out in the wild. So we're doing that for the cycads. So we are doing it for maybe about 10 species that are pretty much extinct in the wild. Uh, and we've got samples from private collectors, from botanic gardens, and we've figured out the, the DNA profile of each of, those one, each of those samples. And what we're doing is we're going to determine, first, are they clones of each other? Because that's the thing that cycads do is they can produce clones. Wow. And so we don't want... We don't want to have a botanic garden full of, you know, 20 clones. Mm -hmm. We then, in the long term, once they grow big enough to breed, we want to breed them and produce more plants to increase that population and increase the health. And so we're going to use genetics to help guide our breeding program. So just like a captive breeding program in a zoo. And so I've got someone working on that and she's doing an amazing job. Has there been a moment where you realize something either with DNA or with through fossils that you realize you might be one of the only people to know that? There's a few instances where three subspecies were sort of lumped sort of together and then looking at them with the DNA, it was like, no, these are only, these are two subspecies and one of the subspecies is a, an entirely new species. <gasps> That's with DNA. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not being done 
quite a lot in the psych ed world yet. Most of the time, I'll just take a little segue. Most of the time, it's you know, psychologists going into areas that we haven't explored and finding new species with these really obvious characters. And the other thing that I found really surprising is when I was looking at the DNA of today's psychads, I expected them all to reveal that they all evolved you know, alongside the dinosaurs and they were just sort of like hangers on and they made it up, up until today. But then if you think the dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, my DNA patterns were showing pretty much all of these cycads evolved 12 million years ago. So yeah. there's no way that these species today lived alongside the dinosaurs. And so it really sort of reframes it because mm -hmm. if we think of how endangered cycads are, then they haven't survived all of these millions of years of global changes, you know, pressures from dinosaurs. They're actually adapted to modern conditions. And so they may not have the abilities to survive things like global warming and, and climate change. So yes, well, cycads were here for much longer before many other modern plants, like these newbie palms and flowers and fruits, maybe that pear in your lunch. It doesn't mean that cycads stopped growing or stopped evolving or stopped doing the work this entire time, which means that in the Anthropocene, this time, they're vulnerable because of us. And Cycads, I'm so sorry. That sucks. And you deserve better. Um, there's one species that is called Encephalitis woodii. And that was found in South Africa as a clump of four stems. And because the, the plants are either male or female, that clump was only four males. Hey, what's up, dudes? So, that, of course, you know, being the Victorians, they just dug them all out <laughs> and put them at various botanic gardens. And so now they've never found a female and there's only one, there's only the males and they're all around the world. They've produced clones everywhere, but it's never going to reproduce. It's just oh. this one plant. It's like um, that tortoise in the Galapagos, yeah. George, the loneliest L lonesome, turtle. Lonesome George, I think. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. I wonder if one day they're going to find a female somewhere, some, you know, old like ancient in some some forest or some you know overlooked yeah. bush but it's not just sudden climate change that's affecting their population numbers no 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 no. stretch your thumbs because you're about to text some really weird shit to your entire address book get the family chat ready for this and one of the reasons why they are extinct is partly collecting and trafficking is that right yeah it's crazy it's crazy people people are astonished when they find that out. I can't believe it. Like when I first interviewed you and I, I, I'm still like the drama of a psychiatrist. Yeah. Like what's happening out there? It's crazy. It's like, I remember Ranger, um, when I went to the Tanny Garden in Sydney, he was like, hold on, they got stolen? And because I had some specimens stolen from me. And mm -hmm. he was like, but they're not diamonds. Like, mm -hmm. why are they stealing them? Okay, let's get into it. Who are these plant thieves? People are so obsessed with cycads that they want every single species. And there are about 350 species. We're still finding more. Wow. Uh, and so they want every single species. So they will go to all lengths to poach them. Gotta catch them all. So some stories of people who have um, dynamited cliff faces to ah! get the cycads out um, at the... Botanic Garden in Cape Town, 
what they have done is they've gone in in the middle of the night and they've purposely dug up specific species and taken those out. And it's not like the cycad garden is sort of on the edge of the garden. It's really deeply into the garden. Wow. And so they know, these poachers know exactly what species they're targeting. And you just see the, you know, the empty holes where they've taken those particular species. It's like the worst kind of gophers ever. Human yes. gophers. They are. Well, I, I wouldn't even say gophers. They're just criminals. Yes, that's a better way of putting it. So what, how much are they worth when they're getting them? Oh, yeah. So some can be like 30000 40000 <gasps> What? Are you, I'm sorry. It's so loud. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Worth more than a car? It's Oh, yeah. And if it's super rare, like someone told me there was this huge species that is now extinct in the wild. And we saw it in a private collection in South Africa. It probably, it went up to your roof. And wow. It, he said to me, it's probably worth a million dollars. Ah! I am losing my shit. Are you losing your shit? I'm losing it. That's b- bananas. And the other thing is people in South Africa, what they do is they'll buy like a rare species for their kid when their kid is young, raise that species, and then by the time that kid is old enough to go to college, they will sell it and they'll have the money to no. go to, to Oh, my God. Psychads are Bitcoin? What's happening? Yeah. What is the world? <laughs> so psychatologists, do you all – are you all on a WhatsApp thread talking about this kind of stuff? What happens when you meet up in person? What are your Zooms like? Uh, so what we're focusing on is trying to figure out ways to stop this kind of thing happening. So there's different ways. There's, there's national parks. And I you know how you have rangers guarding rhinos and elephants so that, you know, they walk around with them. So I was not aware of this, but in countries all over the world with critically endangered species like the black rhino or African elephants armed rangers patrol for poachers. These units can range from pretty ruthless. For example, Kazaringa Park in India sees more poacher deaths than rhino killings. That's all over the news. There's also really progressive movements like the International Anti-Poaching Foundation's Squad of All Vegan Women, who are rangers in Zimbabwe. And a 2021 paper I found titled Poaching of Encephalardos Transvenosus in the Limpopo province, South Africa, agreed that, quote, patrolling in law enforcement seems to be the agreed means by which poaching can be addressed as indicated by all the respondents from the three nature reserves. Oh, and that last paper, Encephalardos transvenosus, that's a cycad. So in South Africa, three of their 38 native species are what Africa Geographic magazine called, quote, loved to death or extinct in the wild. Three out of 38 already. So there's rangers who do that for cycads. So that's one way to deal with them. And and they've actually shot people. Really? People trying to steal them? And they're like, get out of here. Yeah. And they've shot them. People have gone to jail. My God. It, why aren't there more thrillers about this? There like, should be, should be, yeah. You know, like, where's Liam Neeson? Like, yeah. where's his Zycad movie? But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Yes, I think, uh, that would be a good movie, actually. There would be a good movie. What? Do, okay, I think you're the you're an EP on it, obviously. <laughs> okay. I'll be, I'll be a PA on set who runs around and gets everyone's coffee just so that I can hang out and and hang out with you and learn all this stuff. Do you ever have to like 
testify or be like an expert about any of this kind of stuff? No, no, thankfully, no. Because in the US, there isn't any native psychads. Except okay. maybe in Florida, there's a few. And they're really, really common. But people I know in, in South Africa, yeah, they have had to go to court and testify. So if botanical burglary drama is what you're after, just Google word pairings like cycad heist or plant poacher. The internet will haul up just a wheelbarrow full of returns. From a 2001 Department of Justice memo elaborating in detail about five individuals who sent approximately half a million dollars worth of protected cycads to the U.S. from South Africa, Australia, and Zimbabwe, and then another criminal who bought them, that criminal's name was Donald Wiener, he bought $200,000 worth of stolen plants in the year 2000. That's so many dollars of plants. There was also this South African power psychad couple. They each ran their own flourishing businesses, buying and selling and dealing psychads until greed and deceit and gambling and poaching ripped them apart. Anyway, it's thrilling. It's gripping. Welcome to the world of psychiatric drama. But we're about to get to your questions with Dr. Nagalingam. But first, we like to donate to a charity of the ologist's choosing. And this week, we're honored to donate to Ovarian Cancer Australia in Natalie's name. She has a personal connection to them. And if this cause means something to you, or if you'd like to thank Natalie, for her work, consider donating to them on February 23rd as gifts will be matched that day. So many symptoms of ovarian cancer can be overlooked, like bloating and fullness after meals and abdominal pain, and it gets overlooked a lot. And you can find out more and you can donate if you like at ovariancancer.net.au. There'll be a link in the show notes. And while you're at it, you can find Natalie on Twitter. Tell her how much you appreciate her. Her Twitter is at and Nagalingam, and will be linked in the show notes. So thank you, Natalie, for telling us about that. And thanks to sponsors of the show for making that possible. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be exciting or unexpected. Unexpected is for podcasts about bizarre scientific revelations, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allies love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clips 
play projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping in 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. All right, let's get to the root of your questions, my fronds. Okay, listeners, they know you're on. They're excited. Aki wants to know, I hear these plants can host many things. What are some of the most unusual things that have been found in cycads? Oh gosh, there's so many. There's um, so in their roots they have a bacteria, and that bacteria gets nitrogen from the air and converts it into a usable nitrogen for the cycads. So these roots, side note, are called colloid roots, and I just fell down a musky tunnel about them. But the short version is that they're these knobby roots of cycads that hang out in this shallow layer of soil, and they grab tiny cyanobacteria that photosynthesize and they recruit them. The cyanobacteria are like, okay, okay, I can fix nitrogen for you. What's in it for me? And the cycad roots are like sugar, carbs, all the sweet yums you want for that nitrogen. So the cyanobacteria are like, all right, I'm in. Now, if you were to cut a colloid root, you would see that green cyanobacterial zone as a ring inside of it. So cycads, ancient living soap operas in just a dirty modern world. We love them. But Let's not love them to death. Now, who else loves them? Bugs. Uh, First-time question askers Noah Siam and Jacob Bowman both asked about beetles. In Noah's words, is it true that cycads are pollinated by beetles because they existed before bees evolved? And yes, I looked it up. Bees have only existed for 130 million years. They're coming on the scene while cycads were in middle age. And beetles are like, oh, hey, what's up? Bee? Cool. That's cool. Other pollinator questions came from listeners Harper Thomas, Floridian, Gerald Thompson, and Anthony, who asked, if I'm not allowed to be their personal pollinators, then who is? They're pollinators. They host their pollinators 
inside the cones. So pollination is one of my favourite stories because you have cycads and the plants look exactly the same. You have male and female plants. But they once they produce cones, then you can say, oh, okay, this is a male one, it produces pollen. This is a female one, it produces ovules, which you know, eventually produces eggs. And then you need the beetles to go to the male ones. And what they do is they get attracted by this, this odour that oh. the male um, pollen cones emit. And the odour sort of increases, actually it's a slight odour, or, or technically it's a volatile. So it attracts all of the beetles and there's also thrips as well and weevils. And they basically it's an orgy. They feed and they mate and they lay their eggs on there so that like, they have an orgy on the male pollen cone. And then once, I don't know how the pollen cone decides, but it decides that, okay, you know, you guys have had enough. <gasps> I need to kick you out. And so oh what God. it does is it increases the amount of the odour and it kicks them all out of the cone. I think you should leave. And it's wow. kind of like, um, it's like when you wear cologne, you know, if you wear like a little bit of cologne, that's really <laughs> nice. And then if you wear a lot of cologne, you know, when you're stuck next to that person who's got a lot of cologne on, you're like, oh my God, you're stinky. <laughs> So, oh my god yes so they get rid of it um and then the cool thing about that is that it's possibly the only plant system that does that because if you think of other like flowers they will attract insects with their odors to pull them in but they don't actively push them away with their increased cologne mm-hmm. so that's a really unique system and considering that you know these are pretty ancient they've still got this very modern oh, interesting system that nothing yeah. else has had has developed that's pretty sophisticated it is it is and there's um somebody out of the out of utah and she's been working on this a lot as well she does some really cool work irene terry and so then after that the insects get kicked out because of the, all the cologne and then they go to the female cone um that produces a tiny little bit of odor but enough for the insects to come over and they you know crawl all over and they pollinate, you know, the eggs, um, and then they leave. Wow. That's so cunning. It's coning. It's, a- it's cunning. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so when Natalie describes this as like a cologne dose gone wrong, she's not kidding. So this species of cycad makes a compound called B-mercine to seduce these tiny little insects called thrips. Now, how does it blast them away? How does it suddenly squirt a bunch more cologne? The cycad uses its stored carbohydrates and fats, and it burns them all to raise its own temperature during the hottest part of the day, which lets off more of this beta-mercine. So the now pollen-doused thrips are like, we're out. And then they go find a less stinky female plant, dusting it with the cycad sperm. So who needs flowers when you have strategy, people? And B-mercine. And I wondered what that was and what it smells like. What do they smell like? So I Googled the work of Dr. Irene Terry, who Natalie just mentioned. And in a 2007 New Scientist article titled, Ancient Plant Has Hot, Stinky Sex, Dr. Terry stated that the whiff, quote, takes your breath away. It's a harsh, overwhelming odor, like nothing you ever smelled before. But what does that mean? What, Dr. Terry, come on. To her credit, Dr. Terry is not one of those perfume guys on TikTok. But it turns out that M. Mercine is used in perfumes. So I asked some cologne and fragrance websites, which use terms like fruity, fresh, 
and clove-like. The Good Sense Company website used the most adjectives, including spicy, earthy, and musky, refreshing, almost citrusy, but warm, balsamic, and ethereal sweet. Mm. I want to be doused in the lovemaking of a cycad, but trust a thrip, people. Too much of this compound can be irritating and toxic. So even if you're enjoying the plant jizz, you're going to want to bounce too. On that note. One listener wrote in, Carla Maria Pyras, and asked, what? Cycads have motile sperm cells? Tell me more. Is that true? Yeah, so the sperm in cycads have motile sperm cells. So they're sw- they are swimming around. Yeah, they do swim around, yeah. They're like a little blob, and there's like a, a helix of little tails, like flagella, that go all the way to the top. You know, like a spinning top. Wow. And then as it's sort of at the top of the pointy bit, you've got all those flagella, and then the flagella sort of wind their way around, and it just helps it swim. Wow. So many advancements. They really have a lot of bells and whistles, you know? Yeah, I think, and that's sort of something to be cautious about is that, you know, when you talk about something that's really ancient, is that it may not be ancient in all its ways. So, like, you know, using the term like living fossil, which I have done, um, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a misnomer because we're kind of just saying it's, you know, it's old, it hasn't changed, but it's still had millions of years to change mm-hmm. and it's got some cool features. Well, Zoe Armstead, a first-time question asker, asked how someone who is not a psychedologist, someone who is not an Natalie, can tell the difference between male and female psychedelic plants. Uh, Zoe says they kind of look like they have giant wangs. <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So the, um, the pollen cones, they if you look at uh, like underneath each individual sort of unit, we call them scales, you'll find little, like, little balls underneath them which is funny considering we're calling them wangs. Um, they're tiny, like tiny little balls. Um, and that's where the pollen comes out. So you, it's only when you can see the cones. So look for round spherical objects on the underside and um, a conical pollen phallus in the center. It's a boy. And then there's a few different kinds of female cones. So the one that's a sago palm, it just looks like it's almost like an open bud flower, but it's not a flower. And you can see the seeds as they mature on the edges of the leaves. Mm-hmm. And then otherwise, they, they just look like big pineapples, like you said. <sighs> so they're, they're a bit more tricky to tell apart. But the, the telltale one is the little balls on the, on the scales. There's going to be people who are at a botanical garden looking at cycads, and they'll probably have a security guard being like, what are they so close up in there? What are they? Why are they, un- why are they in the undercarriage? Get out of the yeah. chunk. <laughs> but a word of warning. The pollen can be, has neurotoxins in it. And so just be careful not to breathe them in. I mean, I don't know. You probably have to, you know, really snuff them in. But just, just be careful and wash your hands. Have you ever had to worry about that when you've been out in the field? Not out in the field, but definitely like I've tried experiments where we get pollen and we do artificial um, pollination mm-hmm. and so we get the pollen and you know we wear masks like like we're all wearing masks now so mm-hmm. we get like n95 masks which you all know about just to make sure you know we're not breathing in that pollen prehistoric poaching plotting poison nude seeds cycads you are the forbidden reality show that we did not know that we loved now who else asked about toxicity so many of you including kersey first time question asker matt Jolef, mb and and we actually had a few listeners write in to say, Kelly Shaver wants to know, what is with this thing where animals eat toxic cycads and they're fine, but humans 
eat the animals and are affected by the toxins. And Emma Garshagen wants to know about poison seeds, if that's true of all cycads. Yes. So they are, they are poisonous and the toxins, the toxins are pretty bad. And so one story that I can think of is in Guam where, and it's actually not conclusive, but they thought that people who were eating the seeds of one of the Guam cycads, they, during the war, either they didn't prepare the seeds properly and just ate them, you know, without preparation and they got sick or they were eating fruit bats um, <gasps> that were able to, you know, to withstand it and they got sick from that. And they ended up with a neurological disease, like an ALS Parkinson's-like disease, which mm-hmm. coincidentally, you know, after the Second World War, when that the food shortages ended, that incidence of those, those diseases ended. But it's still kind of, there's still a big scientific debate about this, like why is this happening kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why they're toxic to, like, to us, but to, not to some animals. I mean, some, you know, some cows, they get, I think the Australian farmers call them dropsy or something. So they get a sort of paralysis in their legs um, sometimes if they eat cycad leaves. And sort of all around the world, what I love is that peoples all around the world, like in Australia, in Guatemala, in Mexico, in South Africa, people have figured out how to detoxify the seeds. And so they figured out you can use ash, you can put them in a a basket and Mm -hmm. run that basket through a a creek and it leaches out all the toxins or through a series of soaks. And so this is a kind of funny one where they just like soak them in a series of soaks and they Mm -hmm. decide whether the the toxins are leached out by giving some water to the chickens. And if the chickens die, then the toxins have not been eliminated. So they keep going with the soaks. Okay, so I tried to find out if you can eat a poisoned chicken, but after learning that the sago palm is extremely poisonous to animals, including humans, and that pets think it's delicious, but within 12 hours of eating it, they can develop vomiting, diarrhea, weakness, seizures, liver failure, bruising, nosebleeds, and blood in the stool, and that the ASPA Animal Poison Control Center estimates a fatality rate of 50 to 75% when ingestion of the sago palm is involved. I'm like, I don't think anyone wants to eat those chickens. I think they're like, catch Tori, and everyone's like, absolutely not. No, toss it in the river. You know, getting back a little bit to that toxicity, Nano Naturalist asked um, about the Oliver Sacks book, Island of the Colorblind. Yeah. Have you read that at all about... Uh, yes. Yeah, tell me more about how you felt about that. Yeah, so, so Oliver Sacks, I mean, his writing is beautiful. And mm-hmm. so he he believes that it was the bat theory, I think, mm-hmm. um, and that's about Guam and that whole process of people not getting enough food and then wanting and then using the cycads as a source of food. And then so he and another doctor went and investigated that, and so that was his conclusion that it was oh. the cycads that caused it. Oh um, wow! But other other doctors have come up with other reasons and. You know, there's been other incidences in Japan as well. So it's still, it's not clear. No, Nobody really knows. Just a shout out to listener Balit Novak, who was also excited about this question and asked if researchers had yet confirmed the cause of this condition yet, which is referred to as ALS-PDC 
or lidocobodig disease. And essentially, a recent 2021 paper seemed to reiterate the hypothesis that traditional methods for safe consumption of cycad seeds appear to have been lost over the course of time since colonizers banned consumption. And other articles have tracked the incidence rates and the cycad seed hypothesis essentially seems to be going strong. Also, I started reading yet another Bananas article about a cycad caper, which led with Joanne Flack is on the run, suspected of stealing a rare African plant thought to be extinct and worth millions of dollars. And Sonia Kurtz was hired by the CIA to hunt down Joanne to find the link between the missing plant and a terrorist group hiding out in South Africa before I realized that this article was a book review for the 2020 novel Last Survivor by Tony Park. And I don't know if this book is a good book, but it is about cycads and it exists in case that kind of action thriller is just what the doctor ordered. Oh, which brings me to... Rachel Walwood wanted to know, first I have a question to ask her, uh, says, this seems like a type of plant that would be excellent for research into practical application as medicine. Yes? No? Maybe? Uh, yes. So in South Africa, they do use the bark for headaches oh they do use it for actually some for voodoo as well so if you put some under your bed like it kind of protects you mm -hmm. um but that's all i know i, I know i gotta say if you put a forty thousand dollar plant under your pillow it seems like pretty good luck to <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think it's just a little bit of bark. Just a little bark. Okay. Yeah. Um, Kitty Bailey, also first time question asker, wants to know if they have any appearances in mythology or any interesting stories about them. And if not, if there's any in movies or TV that you as a psychologist have seen and said, that's not right. Or, oh, they got it right. Oh, so definitely Jurassic Park. They're in there. I'm not really sure about like the mythology is um, pretty varied. One of the stories I love is in Vanuatu is that it's a symbol of war versus peace and it's also a symbol of the chief. And so if you have two cycad fronds and they're crossed, that means that the two neighbouring tribes are at war. And it's only until that is resolved that the fronds get uncrossed and then they have a huge big party. Oh, wow. And so it's also a taboo um, so if somebody places a cycad frond somewhere, it means that this, you know, say this person's shop is under taboo. And so people won't go in that shop. It's also a chiefly symbol. And if a chief places a cycad frond wherever, say on the beach, he's indicating that this is my beach. Nobody can come here. Natalie also related a story about Prince Charles being gifted a ceremonial cycad frond to honor his power as a chief and uh, warned me before Googling. He's topless though, so I'll just warn you about that. Okay, so I looked around for this and I did find some pictures of Prince Charles fully clothed in like a rumpled suit on the beach during this exchange, but the search of him topless did return some beach frolicking recon on that trip. All I can say is that I hope that his royal aides had some sunscreen in like a fire extinguisher canister, just blast it. Now, what if... It's not enough to take home all of this knowledge. What if you want to take home a psych ad? So listeners, Andy, Christy Kazakov, Jen Squirrel Alvarez, Joe Mueller, and Caitlin Powell asked about their cultivation. And in Rebecca Weinzettel's words, can I grow one in a pot in my Midwestern apartment? And on that note, patrons Chelsea and Emily Davis wrote in, not a question, but heck yeah, dinosaur plants. How do you feel about people who grow cycads and cultivate them? just to keep them around? Do you feel like it's like 
maybe only where they should already be growing? Or how do you feel about people propagating them? Oh, I love them. I mean, if you can get cycads everywhere. Like I remember seeing them at Whole Foods once. Someone <sighs> told me they saw them at Ikea. Um, <laughs> I've seen them at Disneyland. You know, it's they're, they're, the common species are not hard to find. And so you can easily find cycads. It's just those rare species where you're spending thousands that you know may be kind of dodgy. And so, you know, I love that people grow cycads and I love that people who have just been to my talks, they come up to me and say, oh, I found a cycad on my walk and they'll show me the picture of the cycad. And so they become cycad spotters. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's really exciting because, you know, now they know about them. Yeah. And I understand you don't have the greenest thumb, but our cycads, no, no, no. <laughs> you told me when we met in San Francisco that you're like, I'm actually terrible with plants. Yeah, I can't grow anything. <laughs> Which makes me feel so much better because I am not good with plants and I kill like every cactus I've ever had. Um, any tips on uh, how to cultivate a cycad? What, do they like sun? Do they like miracle grow? I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like this. I feel like this is a really mean question, Ali. <laughs> you, no. you know, I don't know how to grow. <laughs> no, it's one of the reasons I fell in love with you. I was like, I, I love that this is a botanist who's like, I'm not very good with plants, but you're good with plants on a level that's like saving them and on like a molecular and taxonomic and like going around the world doesn't mean that you have to be good at growing one in a pot yeah, on your desk. No, no, no. <laughs> I feel a like kinship yeah, I'll with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about the hardest part of your job other than growing plants? <laughs> um, I think it's just like, you know, there's writing papers and it's just that pressure of writing papers. Mm -hmm. That's that's hard. I think and I think a lot of academics would say that and it has to be really good. So it's that sort of constant churning out of papers as well. But mm -hmm. you, you don't want to write rubbish. And right. so it's just, it's hard. Are you uh, someone who writes a lot of drafts or are you someone who just wrings your hands, procrastinates and does it all at once? What's your strategy there? Any tips? Uh, one, the way I do it is that I will set aside time in the, like in the morning usually and I will just sit at my computer and force myself to write <laughs> one or two paragraphs. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, this is really crap, but I'm just going to write it and then I, you know, I do whatever I can and then the next day I get back to it and then I fix that one and I write another one and I sort of keep going that way. I just, I can't, I can't do the whole thing in one, mm -hmm. but it's just like little by little. That is really, really good advice to revise what you've done and then do a draft that you allow to be rubbish. And it's never that crappy, is it? When you go back, yeah, are you like, yes. hey, this is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the ideas are there, and you know, just, so you just sort of restructure it and fit it in with the next paragraph. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And, you know, the hard part is starting. Oh, tell me about it, man. That's great advice. You may have just changed people's lives with that, like, kind of relay <laughs> writing where you're like, all right, fix the last one, do the next one, fix it. You know, that's great. Yep. I'm going to try that. Um, what about your favorite thing about psychads or your work? Oh, I love talking about psychos because they're so fascinating. They're just, I mean, I've told you a little bit about them, but there's so many more things that I could talk about. They're just fascinating. One little group of plants has so many stories. I had some dreams of writing a book about psychos and all their crazy stories about the people and their biology and reproduction. 
um, but never got around to it. Uh, meanwhile, we have this. <laughs> yes. Anything that you would recommend people look into if they're now suddenly a psychiatrist spotter? Um, there are these lots of pictures online, but the uh. academy has produced a bunch of videos where I'm talking about all these different issues. So if people want to hear more of my voice, you can go to the academy's video pages and look up Natalie Nagelingham and watch those, including getting to ask you a bunch of questions at uh, the dawn of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. Um, this has just been such a joy. You've been on my list for so long and I'm glad I just I'm glad we didn't put it off anymore. It just went for it because I wanted to ask you about this literally since the day I met you two years ago. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the excellent, excellent work you do. Thank you for having me. So ask iconic people botanic questions. And let this be a lesson. When you have a friend you want to chat with, do it sooner rather than later. Dr. Natalie Nagelingham, we straight up love you so much and you're a treasure in this world. Thank you on behalf of every SciCAD on the planet for your work. And Natalie's website is linked in the show notes if you want to find out more about her and her work, as is her Twitter at nnagalingam. We will also link some other videos that she's been in through the California Academy of Sciences. Also, mark your calendar for March 3rd. I'm going to be moderating another panel with them. And it's part online, part in person, but March 3rd, tune in California Academy of Sciences. I'm really, really excited to actually be back in person, even if it's in a limited group. But again, follow Natalie N. Nagalingam on Twitter. Tell her how cool she is. Uh, more links, including one to donate to Ovarian Cancer Australia on February 23rd, matching day, are all up at aliward.com slash ologies slash psychedology. Linked that in the show notes. We are at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Allie Ward with one L on both. Uh, thank you, Aaron Talbert, for managing the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Thank you, Shannon and Bonnie of the comedy podcast You Are That for helping out too. Thank you, Susan Hale, who handles everything from payroll to merch. Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, who helps schedule and run behind the scenes. Emily White makes our professional transcripts. Caleb Patton bleeps them. Those are up for free for anyone who needs them at aliward.com slash ologies extras. All our episodes are also arranged by topic too on my site at aliward.com slash ologies dash by dash topic. So you can find all sorts of episodes maybe you've overlooked. Kelly Dwyer updates the website. She can make yours too. Her link's in the show notes. Every two weeks, a new Smologies episode comes out and those are shorter condensed. They are defilthed digests for all ages, totally parent and classroom friendly. And those are in your feed or at aliward.com slash smologies. Thank you, Zeke Rodriguez Thomas of Mind Jam Media for heading those up and Stephen Ray Morris, who helps too. Uh, as we record this at 9.48 p.m. on Valentine's Day, thank you to lead editor Jarrett Sleeper of Mind Jam for making sure this gets out the door every week. Jarrett, the mayor of Babetown Sleeper, the best. Uh, Nick Thorburn made the music and he is in a very good band called Islands. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I'll tell you a secret. This week's secret is I swear ADHD is coming out this week. I swear. Y'all, I added two more guests for it. I'm sorry. I can't help it. It's such a big episode. So there's now four guests for it in a two-parter. It's going to be so good. I will be making some of it on a plane this week. Take care of yourself. I love you all very much, especially you, Dr. Naglingham. And Jarrett, happy Valentine's Day. Okay, bye-bye.
plants in this building that are poisonous. You pick them because they look good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. 